Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello? Nathan. Hey, man, it's Luke. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, did you know that 30 years ago this past week was the first time rap was included in the Grammys? I didn't know that. That's amazing. It was probably long overdue by that point, even. Oh, for sure. And so the winner of Best Rap Performance was Parents Just Don't Understand, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Oh, yeah. Do you know who lost Best Rap Performance in the first rap Grammy. You know what? I would say it's probably somebody like NWA. Nope. So I want you to think about somebody that we would listen to almost every day driving to high school together. Oh, oh, okay. That's got, all right. That's got to be um, Wild Wild West. Wild Wild West. That's the song that lost best rap performance. Cool Mo D. I can literally recite the entire song to this day. <laughs> you remember his song? I think it was Cool Mo D that had a, uh, it's like, go see the doctor. Yeah, it's just so yeah. cheesy. All about STDs. There were lots of songs about STDs in that time. So cheesy. So I good. love that guy. So I just wanted you to be aware of that as you go through the rest of this week. Just know that 30 years ago this week, our beloved Kumo D lost best rap performance. Man, dude. And you know what? And the world regrets it. <laughs> as well they should. <laughs> All right, man. We're going to jump into the episode now. Hey, have fun, buddy. Thank you. See ya. From Milieu Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 1, Episode 2, Billboard Bad Boys. And today we're looking at the week that ended Saturday, February 25th, 1989. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode two of 30 Pop. I'm especially excited about this episode because I got to discuss a few different huge albums that were dominating the Billboard charts in February of 89 with a few different friends. Before we jump into that, though, a couple of other notable events from 30 years ago this week to sort of set the stage. First off, for the second consecutive week, The Burbs was the box office favorite, which is understandable as the only new releases Hollywood gave us that week were American Ninja 3, Blood Hunt, the Toxic Avenger Part 2, and a Carl Reiner-directed musical called Burt Rigby, You're a Fool, none of which I've seen, but two of which I'd probably really enjoy. For folks who chose instead to blockbuster and chill rather than head to the theater, the new releases on VHS would have been the John Cleese and Jamie Lee Curtis comedy classic A Fish Called Wanda and Michelle Pfeiffer and Alec Baldwin's Married to the Mob, neither of which I was of age to rent. Topping the Billboard charts, as I mentioned last week, was Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel once again. This was Bobby's second run of three weeks at the top, as his streak was interrupted, oddly, the week of February 11th, by an album that had released nearly two years earlier, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. I hopped on a call with the biggest GNR fan I know and frontman for Birmingham rock band The Blue Cut Robbery, singer-songwriter Matthew Mayfield, to get his take on exactly what happened. Matthew, thank you so much for being on 30 Pop. Welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here, man. Thanks for having me. 
So you are the single greatest Guns N' Roses fan I have ever known. I don't know anyone that loves the band quite as much as you do. And that's saying something because I know some folks that really love this band. I want to talk to you about this interesting little anomaly that happened in February of 1989. So Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction, which is their biggest album ever, released in like July of 87. But in February of 89, in the midst of six consecutive weeks of Bobby Brown being at the top of the Billboard charts, that album for one week rose back to the top of the charts. And it was interesting because it happened in a week that like there were some other major releases in other genres. So like George Strait had a big release that week. Two Live Crew had probably their biggest album released that week. But for whatever reason, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction jumped back up to the number one album in the country. And I just wanted to know if you had any theories as to why or how that happened. Well, being the nerd that I am, I've got a bunch of theories, but I'll just give you one. You know, they put Jungle out first. Uh, with all the hair bands, and, you know, they stuck out, you know, because they were, even though Axel's hair is teased in that first video, they were dangerous, you know, and they had a danger element that was scary, you know, that song's super scary, and it's not, you know, it's musically sound, but, you know, no one knew what to do with those guys, you know, because they lived it, you know, they were the most dangerous thing in the room, and so, you know, the stuff they were singing about was real, and I think that uh, when they put Jungle out, uh, originally, yeah, it didn't work as a single. And then they, obviously, they did Sweet Child, and Sweet Child was the biggest single off, off that record and the biggest hit in their catalog. But I've heard their manager and a couple other folks got in touch with David Geffen, who signed them, and said, look, if you'll just play this video, they called MTV, and so we just play this video for up on the jungle like one time, and one time, at like four in the morning, it doesn't matter, and then just as a personal favor, and they played it one time, and, you know, all the circuit boards went absolutely berserk, and everybody fell in love with the band instantly after that. And I think the resurgence was just sort of people missed it on the first go-round, and then mm-hmm. I think that when, after MTV sort of gave them that exposure, it just started to go haywire. And to this day, I mean, Appetite for Destruction is the highest-selling rock debut album of all time. Is it really? Wow. So this was their first record? Well, yeah, it was, they had put out an EP before, but this was their first major label debut. Yeah. That's crazy, man. Wow. Well, man, thank you so much for sharing your theory, and uh, we look forward to having you back sometime. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. So I have no idea whether or not his theory is right, but I have to assume that it is. I went looking for confirmation and found myself deep down the rabbit hole of Axl Rose interviews, mostly with legendary MTV VJ Kurt Loder, with no real mention of it one way or the other. If you have a different theory about how Guns N' Roses reclaimed the charts that week, I'd love to hear it. Email me at 30poppodcast at gmail.com. Matthew and I actually talked quite a bit more about Guns N' Roses, and he shared a really fun story about the first time he met Slash, Guns N' Roses' incredible guitarist and his idol since childhood. You can hear that story and a lot more by partnering with me for as little as $1 a month at the Patreon link in the show notes for this episode. Now, back to Bobby. So, as I mentioned, Bobby Brown's album, Don't Be Cruel, was, for the fifth week in 1989, at the tippy-top of the Billboard charts. I have pretty clear memories as a kid of hearing that album in cassette form blasting throughout our house, emanating from the bedroom of my older brother, Josh. So I sat down with him this week to reminisce a bit about that album and other things that were happening in the world at the time. 
Josh, my big brother, welcome to 30 Pop. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you on. I'm excited. So 30 years ago this week, for the second of three weeks, the number one album on the Billboard charts, Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel. It's a great album. Yes. Start to finish, great album. Well, in my mind, it was great anyway. I don't know how it, how it holds up. Yeah. How it holds up. But for me, I was a huge New Edition fan when I was even younger. And then when they kind of all went their own ways, you have Bobby Brown that came out and he was kind of the star of the group, I would say. You know, you had Belba DeVoe that was huge and, you know, Ralph Tresvent, Johnny Gill, all these guys that did some different stuff. But Bobby was really kind of the front man and the stud. So I love this album. I still love this album. I still have it on my phone. That does not surprise me in any way. What's funny to me, this record released like in June of 88, but here we are in February of 89 and it's crushing the Billboard charts. I mean, three back-to-back weeks in that number one spot. So big singles from this record, Don't Be Cruel, obviously my prerogative. That was a big deal. That was a huge video on MTV, huge video. I wasn't a dancer, but those people that like to dance, they loved that video and the dancing in that video. I don't remember it at all. We'll have to watch it. I'll put a link to it. It's great. Yeah, check the show notes. We'll have a link to Bobby Brown's My Prerogative. Every Little Step was a big one, but I remember some of the deep cuts. So Roni, Rock With Ya, there were some great songs. There was a lot of Michael Jackson influence in what Bobby Brown did on some of these songs. And in what everyone was doing at the time. I mean, it it was everywhere. Yeah. But Bobby kind of put it out there. He didn't hide the fact that he was doing those things. Yeah. And this is before Bobby Brown was a complete freak. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this led into Ghostbusters. And then at some point over the next couple of years is when him and Whitney got together. Mm-hmm. And that just, I think they destroyed each other. Yeah. Which was brutal because he was phenomenal artist in his own right for his genre. But she is she's across Whitney. all genres. Yeah. yeah. Kind of yeah, a cautionary he, tale. Yeah. He always had this thing where he seemed to like he was trying to be provocative in some way. So, I mean, I remember my prerogative was like a big deal. Well, he was he was the bad boy. Yeah. I mean, he made no bones about it. He didn't hide behind it. He wanted that image. He wanted the tough guy, the bad guy, whatever you want to call it, because it sells. So Yeah, I know eventually he ended up releasing a song called Humping Around. <laughs> I, I recall this song. I remember mom driving me to Warehouse Music or wherever it was that we bought music at the time so I could buy Bobby Brown humping around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was... 80s and 90s were a wonderful time. It was awesome. You could just do <laughs> things like that. So there were some other things, though, besides this record that happened this week in 1989. You're a huge sports guy. You were even more so then, I think, a huge sports guy. Absolutely. And so... There was some big news, especially growing up where we grew up, this week in history. So 30 years ago, the Dallas Cowboys fired Coach Tom Landry after a 29-year career. Man, I remember that like it was yesterday. So some context, we grew up in Fort Worth, which is a neighbor to Dallas. Absolutely. Grew up in a family of generations of Cowboys fans. Right. And so Tom Landry is like, I mean, he's an icon. You didn't miss a game. Even yeah. if they're blacked out, we would drive 45 miles down the road to my grandmother's house to watch the game because it wasn't blacked out there. And so when they sold to Jerry Jones, it was a huge deal. He was this brash, young, rich entrepreneur that was going to do his own thing, this old man. And the first thing he does is fire a legend. So that's what happened here. Yeah. Because so, I don't remember this. Yeah, I Jerry, Jerry came in and cleaned house. Wow. Which was his right to do. He bought the team and it paid off, you know, but over Tom the next Landry. several years. But it, Tom Landry. Easily one of the greatest coaches in football history. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and a known silhouette. I don't care what football town you're in, you see a silhouette of Tom Landry with his hat and you know who it is. He was a legend and 
an icon in the NFL for years and years and years. One of the most successful coaches of all time. For sure, one of the longest tenured coaches for one organization. I mean, he like you said, he was here almost 30 years. All of those 29 years were as the Cowboys coach? Yeah, he was here 29 years. That's crazy. There's still people that hate the Cowboys because of Jerry Jones firing Tom. And to this day, I have friends that I hate the Cowboys. I won't cheer for him until Jerry's gone because he fired Tom Landry. That's ridiculous. Dude, that was 30 years ago. You got to let it go. They've won Super Bowls since then and Time to sucked let it go. again since then. So. so another big sports event happened. I don't know how big it was. Maybe you have a better memory of this than I do. Another big sports event, though, that happened. Mike Tyson mm-hmm. fought Frank Bruno. Yeah. Mike was the baddest man on the planet. He had already won 30, 35-0, something like that. He was undefeated. And Frank Bruno was a bad man. He was from England. These two guys did not like each other and did not hide it, and Mike just hurt him. Mike just, I mean, knocked him out like he did everybody else at that time and just beat him down. I mean, Mike was probably the biggest athlete in the world, even more so than Michael Jordan at that time, just because nobody could touch him. Yeah. You know, Bruno was bigger. Well, this Heavier. is a time when boxing was a big deal. I mean, yeah. it was a far more legitimate sport. Because it's sort of, of coming Tyson. back into legitimacy now, but like it was a huge deal. This is pre MMA. Yeah. Absolutely. It was, and Mike was the biggest thing going. I and mean, I'm not literally. sure we knew yet that he was like beating up his wife and things like that. I think at that time he was still in depression and he was married to, to Robin Givens. And well, that's know, she the wife on, I was thinking of. She was on head of the class and all that good oh stuff. Oh my gosh, so. head of the class. Yeah, got to love that. But man, he was a legit bad man, but he was smaller. A lot of people thought Bruno was going to beat him because Bruno was bigger and supposedly stronger, but Tyson was quicker and meaner and just, he was Mike Tyson. He's yeah. one of the best ever. So, okay. So we had a couple of icons in Tom Landry and Mike Tyson, just for fun. Who were some other, in 1989, who were some other sports icons that were sort of on that level. You had Magic Johnson with the okay. Lakers. They were huge. Larry you, Bird. Were, you were a huge I was, Magic Johnson I'm still fan. a huge, yeah. Magic is still, to this day, my favorite this player. Is, we're, we're getting near the end of his career at that point, too. I mean, he had two yeah, seasons he, left. Yeah, unfortunately. Larry Bird was great. You had the tail end of Dr. J. Mm. In football, you had Joe Montana. You had Jerry Rice, two of the best ever. I mean, I hate to say that because as a Cowboy fan, that hurts, but they were two of the best ever. It was a great time, you know, Elway and Marino and and some of these guys that we got to grow up watching play are, are we, historically. We didn't necessarily well, grow up watching. Some of the guys play. that I watched play are historically <laughs> some of the best at their position of all time. So it was a lot of fun to grow up in those times and watch those guys. So you were in seventh grade at this point, right? Yes. What were you like as a seventh grader? I was, was this pre-mullet or was this when you had the mullet? Um, I don't think I had any. I think the mullet was eighth grade. I, yeah, the mullet was definitely eighth and ninth grade, I think. I don't think I had any hair design. I think it just kind of sat there. What were you wearing at this point? Uh, let's see. We had tight roll jeans. Um, mm, I remember the tight roll. Even the tight roll the, shorts the, were a thing, too. Yeah, the bass shoes that you take the pencil and, oh, and tie the string. I remember having blue jean shorts that rolled up, and you'd cut slits in them and wear spandex underneath. Yes, that was that was a yes. lot of fun. You were a huge dork. That's right. I yes. remember. It was not a good time. You know, you had guests. You had Z Cavaricci. You had Zodiac shoes. I mean, it was... I don't even know what Zodiac shoes are. Oh, you should look them up. They were awesome. They were like high top loafers that you I mean, would wear I was, with tight I was pants. nine years old, so I probably wouldn't pay attention. Probably not. But it was not a good time for fashion at all. Yeah. When do you think you really sort of found your way? I think I'm still looking. I think so I too. I think I'm still still trying to figure that out. <laughs> awesome. Well, so glad to have you on the show. We'll definitely have you back in the future. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. We'll see you next time.
Now, not only was Bobby Brown enjoying consecutive weeks at the top of the Billboard charts, but so was pop princess Paula Abdul, who had the number one single in the country for the third straight week, Straight Up. One of my lifelong friends and favorite human beings is singer-songwriter and classic rock aficionado Ryan Hamilton. Ryan and his band, the Harlequin Ghosts, recently released a pretty killer cover of that song, so it seemed fitting to bring him on the show to talk about it. Here's our conversation. Ryan, welcome to 30 Pop. Thanks for being on with us. Thanks for having me. So let's talk for a second. 30 years ago this week, the number one single on the Billboard charts for the third straight week was Paula Abdul's Straight Up. <laughs> How old were you 30 years ago today? I don't want to say, but I've been like 25 for 13 years. You're younger than me, so you should feel <laughs> How old was I 30? I was seven, and I remember Paula Abdul. I remember it. You know, MC Scat Cat was the thing that stuck with me, that music video. Okay, but that wasn't this song, was it? No, and that's what's really funny about this song is when we were trying to figure out a B-side for the single, they wanted us to do a cover, and I was like, oh my God, we should do a Paula Abdul song. Let's do the one for that music video with MC Scat Cat. And the irony being... We recorded the wrong song. <laughs> That's amazing. What song? That was uh, like Opposites Attract or something. That, like it that, was right? Opposites Attract. So, and I That's even, funny. I know I started to do interviews and it was actually somebody in the press that said, that's not the same song. That's amazing. So what do you remember about this song as a seven-year-old kid? Because, you know, I've known you most of your life. And I know even as a seven-year-old kid, you were listening to like classic rock. You were like into like David Bowie and ZZ Top. But it's hard for me to imagine that you were listening to Paula Abdul as a seven-year-old. Well, you know, it's funny because I was. I've always been obsessed with classic rock. But I had three or four, you know, I don't want to say... Guilty Pleasure. Actually, yeah, let's say Guilty Pleasure. <laughs> Debbie Gibson, for sure, was one. New Kids on the Block was the other one. Amen to that. <laughs> and Paula Abdul was on there. It's funny because next week, the thing that knocks Paula Abdul off the Billboard top single is Debbie Gibson. In fact, <laughs> next week, so 30 years ago next week. But That's great. Okay, so you guys covered... Now, first of all, for folks who may not know, tell my listeners about who your band is. Yeah, so... My band, we've changed the Ryan Hamilton and a few times. It's currently the Harlequin Ghosts, which I'll save you the long explanation. But we recorded this single as a B-side to another single called Bottoms Up. And when it went to radio in England, everybody played the Paula Abdul cover. Nobody played the actual <laughs> single. What's the reception been? It's been crazy because this is one of those songs where people either forget about it or... You know, they're not quite sure. They're like, oh, my God, who does that song? They quickly remember this is Paula Abdul. And, you know, it's not necessarily a song where people go, that's this. And they know it right off the bat. And yeah. the reception's been really fun because it's that kind of song. I think it confuses people right at first because they can't quite figure out what it is. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think the mark of any good cover is when you take a song that like, I mean, like Paul Abdul, for example, you can look back on that song and be like, oh, it's just 80s pop. But when you put it in like a new context or sort of modern instrumentation, or whatever, and you realize like that's actually pretty great songwriting. That's the mark of like a great pop song, I think. I think so, too. And this song, one thing I realized whenever we were doing it is structurally, it's really weird. There's this really long, what most people would consider the bridge. Yes. Where, and it's just like this talking thing that goes on forever and ever and ever. I was going to ask you about that. 
And that had to be like the most awkward thing to record as a vocalist. Yes. And we tried it, I don't know, 20 different ways. And what's really funny about the recording of this song, it's the only song that we've ever recorded, you know, with this band the past four or five years that doesn't have any other vocals. There's no harmonies. There's, it's literally one single vocal track. There's no nice. harmony. There are no backing vocals. And that happened out of kind of necessity because of that part, because it was just like, you know, talk, go, it's this monotone thing. And, the, you know, not changing. And it's kind of just staying in this, like, I've been a fool before, blah, blah thing. It worked. And it was like, well, if that works, then let's just keep it simple. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a little rap segment. I mean, it's not rap, but you know what I'm saying. Like, it's I'm a that, great rapper. It's, yeah, I mean, I've always thought so. You know what can I say? It's a special talent. I love to rap. I just go, I walk around my house rapping, if you believe it. <laughs> well, I love the cover. We're going to share it on the show. So I wanted to thank you for being on. And now we're going to cut to Ryan Hamilton and the Harlequin Ghosts cover of Paula Abdul's Straight Up. Mm-hmm.
I seriously love that cover so much. Fun fact, I had a roommate in my early 20s who was quite a bit older than me, and he used to listen to one of Ryan's early bands, and he'd get so pumped up that he'd start working out and wouldn't stop until he puked. I didn't live with him very long. Huge thanks to Ryan Hamilton and the Harlequin Ghosts for sharing their cover of Straight Up on the show. You'll find a link to buy their music in the show notes for this episode, and you should definitely do it. You'll also find links to Matthew Mayfield's music, which is also well worth your money. Thanks again to Matthew and to my older brother Josh for being a part of this episode. As always, if you want deleted scenes and other bonus content from this and other Mill U Media Group shows for as little as a dollar a month, just click on the Patreon link in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, friends. Be sure to join us next week as we get into some pretty juicy late 80s controversy. Until then, in the immortal words of Axl Rose, you can have everything you want, but you better not take it from me. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1989 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com. Hey, you know what I was thinking about, too, after we hung up? I was like, going through my mind on that video. Kumo D was, him and all his boys were dressed up in like those leather assless chaps. Can you imagine a rapper today, like Chief Keith, coming out with assless chaps and like rolling around some old... <laughs> so awesome. It was the, the best, man. So he wore that like kind of square hat on top too. And yeah. like the sunglasses that didn't have lenses, they just had like blinds on them. <laughs> yeah. They wrapped all the way around his face. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, it's the best, man. It was a sweet time to be alive. Yeah. All right, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, See you. Bye.